What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. When I was a girl, my mother taught first grade. In our house, the school year started with sunflowers, and as fall progressed, we moved into music. We began with fall songs like "Whirly Twirly, Whirly Twirly in the Air," "Whirly Twirly, Whirly Twirly Everywhere," that captured the falling leaves. As Halloween approached, we sang the song that began, "Little Jack O' Lantern is very round and fat," and ended with, "On Spooky Halloween Night." For me, these songs capture the playful joy and imaginative potential of the season. With the changes in the landscape all around us, and the time to enact some of our dreams by being in a costume, there was something fundamentally fun about this time of year. Today, I find the same kind of playful fun in some great stories about one of my favorite Halloween character types: monsters. Two of my favorites come from one of my very favorite authors, Ed Emberly. Emberly's illustrations are bold and colorful, so his monsters are anything but scary. But even though they don't look scary, we know that sometimes they still can be a little bit intimidating. Emberly's book "Go Away, Big Green Monster" helps us face our monsters as turning the pages finally makes the monster disappear. Emberly also makes another monster go away in "There Was an Old Monster," a fun take on the classic rhyme. In the end, this monster tries to swallow a lion with not much success. While Emberly shows us how to take care of monsters, Jory John and Bob Shay show us that monsters have feelings too. In their book "Don't Call Me a Monster," we find that Floyd Peterson may have purple fur and pointy teeth, but he is so much more than a monster, and he would like to be treated with a little respect. This fun monster story deals with some important lessons about how we should interact with other people who may be different from us. This commentary on great monster books would not be complete without a shout out to the classic "The Monster at the End of the Book" by John Stone. This classic from the Sesame Street Workshop still holds up today as a fun, engaging story, and it's also been developed into a fun, interactive app that has some great, playful interactives that really add to the story. So, if these recommendations from Rachel's World or other songs, stories, or even apps, I hope you'll find a lot of playful things to share with your families, so that you too can have lots of fun on Halloween. Of all the worlds awaiting our youth, dangerous worlds can pack the biggest wallop. Dangerous settings in fiction abound because they make compelling stories, but just how dangerous should they be? BYU English professor John Austinson talks to Rachel today on Worlds Awaiting about the popularity of fictional worlds of peril, dystopia, and apocalypse. John specializes in literature for teens and young adults. Having taught junior high and high school English, he presently teaches courses in adolescent literature and publishes on the topic. Here's Rachel and John. 
We're here today talking with John about young adult books. It's great. Thank you. It, it's an exciting topic. I'm so glad to be here. One of the things that I think most people, when they look at the world of young adult literature, is they see these trends. Yeah. They see these large groups of publishing and books coming out with this, you know, the same genre of the same style. So talk a little bit about what are some of the trends that you you see in young adult literature today? Oh, man. There's so many. I, you know, this is... This is a little different answer, maybe, but one of the one of the trends that I'm excited about is how how popular young adult literature is. I think that's a great trend, but um, I think you're also talking about maybe some trends we see in genres and, and content, and certainly thanks to Suzanne Collins and The Hunger Games, dystopian literature is really big right now. I think. Uh, every every time I think paranormal romance has kind of dwindled, there will be another sort of hit series or hit book that comes out. And, you know, uh, that's a trend. I think a, a real – a very interesting trend we're seeing is nonfiction in young adult literature. And I personally am very excited about this because I, first of all, love nonfiction myself, but I didn't always love it. But as an adult reader, I have come to really love nonfiction, and I'm so excited about what we see coming out in terms of nonfiction. I love that. <laughs> That's great. But, you know, the the thing with trends, I think, particularly in young adult literature, is a lot of people kind of poo-poo them, and they say, oh, sure. it's a trend. Oh, this is another dystopian book. So how do you see that? Do you see that as kind of connected, that trends and popularity are an important part of what young adult literature is, or the audience that it's connected to, that it's an important thing for that particular audience. Um, yeah, I, I think that – well, first of all, popularity doesn't necessarily equal bad, right? It's, it's an easy trap for us to fall into. But, and, and some of this certainly comes about because of, of marketing and, and, and publishing is an industry. It needs to make money. So if The Hunger Games makes money, then when we get some manuscripts that are dystopian, let's try them out. But one of the things I think is really interesting about these trends is that they they develop some complexities in our understanding of, say, dystopia or even paranormal romance, which I think captures some of the magic of first love and some of this surreal feeling of – especially for a young person – of finally being in love for the first time. And, but you know, I, so I think that when we see all these dystopian novels, for instance – we're really seeing writers playing around with what is dystopia and what are some different ways we can twist it. I don't think George Orwell would have ever imagined that you could have so many different kinds of cracked societies as we see envisioned in young adult literature today. I think that's a really important point to make. One of the things I think is so true with this is that teens really need multiple versions, right? Mm. And seeing it from different perspectives is really what growing up as a teen is all about, right? Because they're they're trying to develop themselves as an adult and yeah. seeing different perspectives and seeing how a different author would tell this similar kind of story in different ways opens up a broader world to them that I don't think just one version of one type of story could ever fulfill. You know, when they fall in love with even a character like Katniss, right, from The Hunger Games, they fall in love with her. And then they go to Ali Condi's Matched series that also has a female protagonist, but who has some very different strengths and proclivities than Katniss. Then they get to see, oh, here are two strong females, but they're strong in different ways. And then they go to Divergent and they get Triss and they say, oh, 
It's a wonderful way for young people to have some comfort and familiarity, right? They're familiar with the setting and the idea. And, and we know that that's important to us as readers. We like, we like that familiarity. That's, that's important to us. But the differences give us insights and, and unique perspectives. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I try to avoid looking at young adult literature as, as kind of training wheels or something like that because I don't think but, – but, but in a way, um, it is in fact – educating them in the way we use story as a culture and the ways the, – the multiple ways in which story does more than just entertain because we might when we seek out the comfort of a familiar genre, we might be looking for entertainment. But in there, as you say, when we look at the wrinkles and, and, and the unique features that say Veronica Roth has, has put into her world of Divergent – we're we're learning too. We're we're growing in our understanding, not just of human beings and the human condition, but in the ways in which literature shows us and and invites us to explore that. Well, and I also think part of it too for me is just this really fundamental sense of the human condition and stories that really connect with that. Because you mentioned the paranormal romance trend. When I look at that, I see Beauty and the Beast, ah, sure. right? Yeah. And that that's a story that's been around since the beginning of time, <laughs> essentially, yeah. you know, if you could go that far back. And so there's this sense of, okay, what does that story or that type of story tell us about the human condition in a way that other versions or other kinds of stories can't reach. Well, and I think one of the things that's very important about trends is to recognize that they are a reflection of what our society is preoccupied with. Because, you know, we could credit Lois Lowry with the first dystopian novel in, in The Giver, but it didn't really take off as a genre. But post 9-11, Hunger Games and Divergent, I mean, all of these series books and, and and not just the books but the movie adaptations, right? I, they reflect, I think, concerns that our society as a whole has about the role of government, the future, uh, what trends do we see today that are worrisome and we extrapolate them into the future and, oh, this, this could become really bad, which is perfectly in line with 1984 and Brave New World and all these more traditional dystopias, right? But, but – um, I don't know that Suzanne Collins would be the hit she she is today in the 90s or the 80s. It, it, these trends reflect things about us. And so there I think, yeah, there we can do some really interesting critical thinking about why dystopia now? Why paranormal romance now? What does that say about us, what we're preoccupied with, what we care about today? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I talk to my students a lot about, especially with the genres of fantasy and science fiction. A lot of people Indeed, yeah. look at those genres and say, oh, it's escapism, Pure escapism or, right. or it's something, you know, I, I don't want my teen reading that exclusively. But the reality here, too, is there's some things that can be said in those kinds of genres about the world and about us as human beings that you couldn't say in a realistic context. So I think by looking at it through the lens of the imagination, you actually get more truth sometimes than you do when you see it 
in realism. Well, and this is this is the great irony of calling story fiction, right? That it or, that it suggests that it's not true. And I and I think it was um, E. L. Doctorow who said there is no fiction or nonfiction. There's only narrative. There's just story, whether it's based in history and facts that we can verify, or whether it's in our imagination, as you say. It's the same truth, and I, and I love that idea. I like that with fantasy. So many times in parent-teacher conferences, parents of my students will say, oh, all she'll read is Harry Potter, and don't you think that's a problem? Can you give us something else? And I thought, well, <laughs> but think about – and I would say think of Lord of the Rings. Think of Tolkien, all the deep um, – the, 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 the really critical issues he explores in that work – J.K. Rowling does that in Harry Potter too, but in a much more familiar setting to your son or daughter. So, I, you know, let's not get too worked up about that. I think you're right. Fantasy and science fiction, in fact, I think are some of the places where we can deal with things like prejudice, social class, racism, these, these very troublesome issues in far more forthright ways because there's some distance. And that distance can be really really useful to us sometimes. And the distance, I think, helps us see it yeah. more clearly. Because oh, yeah. I know, and I think it does that for teens as well. Oh, without a doubt. And that's why, like you said, I think imagination and story, it's really important. Thank you so much, John. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Rachel Wadham talking with literary expert John Austinson about the current popularity of dystopian books for young adults and the upside of this kind of literature. Next, Rachel visits with Tina Dykes, professor in the BYU School of Education and founder and current chair of the Dolly Gray Children's Literature Award. She talks to Rachel about creating this award that began with her desire to encourage better fictional depictions of young characters with disabilities. Dr. Tina Taylor Dykes has worked in the field of education for 30 years as a special educator, professor, and administrator. Her scholarship has resulted in three books about using children's literature that includes characters with special needs. Here's Rachel and Tina Dykes. We welcome Tina to the studio today. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. I am so excited to talk to you today because I think this is such an important thing and it will open our audience's eyes to a very new thing that they've never heard of. So this is the Dolly Gray Award. So tell us a little bit about what the Dolly Gray Award is. Okay, well, the official title is the Dolly Gray Children's Literature Award, and it was started in the year 2000 um, as a result of a meeting between me and Marianne Prater, who was at University of Hawaii at the time, and Sharon Kramer, who was at Buffalo. And we were at a conference in Hawaii. Could it get any better? Perfect. After Marianne had um, given a presentation on learning disabilities in children's literature. I had always been interested in this topic. Not always, but ever since my profession. Um, and Sharon Kramer was also interested. And we started talking saying, you know what? We don't have a lot of great depictions of kids with disabilities in children's literature. Um, could we do something about it? So we got our heads together. We started thinking um, about what we could do. And we said, you know what? We can create an award. And so we went to the Council for Exceptional Children and the Division on Autism and Developmental Disabilities. We gave them a proposal and said, could you sponsor this, basically an international award, an English-speaking award? And they said, absolutely, we're all for this. So that was back in about 1998, 1999, and then in the year 2000, we gave our first award. 
That is so amazing because I think the wonderful thing about awards and giving book awards is that it helps promote the books, but then it also helps people be aware that there are these great books out here. So was that the intent of this award is to help promote them and to be help people be more aware of them? Or were there other intents that you brought into this? Oh, lots of different intents. I mean, one would be that there were more and that they were of better quality and that they would depict reality. So they would have accurate, authentic presentations of disability or any kind of a special need, not just, you know, the negative things, not just the positive, but what is realistic for kids when they go to their library and they pick out a book that they read something about a kid with whom they might want to be a friend, not about someone that they would fear because they seem so different. So how do you define that? I mean, authentic, realistic. You kind of mentioned briefly some sure. of the things you're looking at, but but how do you define that? And particularly as people are looking at some of these books, how would they apply some mm. of these criteria that you use for the award to help them pick these quality representations? Sure. We have a lot of different criteria that we look at. Um, and with our panel, with our review panel, we have... Uh, school teachers, like special education teachers, we have librarians, we have authors and illustrators, we have parents of children with disabilities, we have individuals with disabilities, developmental disabilities themselves, um, review. So we get a multi-person um, perspective of what is quality literature, because a special ed teacher wouldn't know high-quality literature, but she might know disability really well. A librarian might not know disability too well, but would know high-quality illustrations and, and literary quality. So we've got a list of different things that we look at. Um, one of the first things we look at is um, the personal portrayal of the character with the disability. Are they accurate? Do they show abilities as well as disabilities? Um, and are those consistent with what we know from research? Um, you know, sometimes authors... Not so much nowadays, but back in the past, they would depict kids with real severe disabilities having these extraordinary skills that were kind of incongruent with the diagnosis um, or lower skills than what you would expect from the diagnosis. So we look at that accuracy. We look, are, are they realistic portrayals? Are they fully developed? Sometimes the kid with a special need is only in there to advance other people's growth. So it's it's a sad inclusion uh, as just this foil, you know, where we're using them for a purpose. And, and we want to see that they grow in ways that are developmentally appropriate as well. So that they're, they really are more dynamic characters, that they have growth and development. And I think there's the corollary, too. So not only is it important that children without disabilities see these depictions, but it's also important for children with disabilities yeah. to see these depictions. So what kind of benefit do children with disabilities derive from seeing these really high-quality books that the, the Dolly Gray Award receives. I'll give you an example from just um, this last weekend. I was with a group of children, and we had one – well, actually, it's, a, it's what we call Sib Shops. It's an international organization for siblings of kids with special needs. And sometimes we have siblings who come to those Sib Shops who – maybe on a broader autistic phenotype. So they have some autistic features, for example. Um, we were reading a book, and one of these kids who 
kind of seemed like, you know, he wasn't diagnosed, but kind of seemed like he had some of those features. We were reading the book and he, he kept saying, I do that. I do that too. Hey, that's kind of like me. He, so he was saying, it's like my brother who's diagnosed, but it's kind of like me. He was getting this realization of, you know what, I've got those special, unique things about me, too. So it can bring a lot of self-recognition in a safe place where they don't have to say, oh, I'm so weird, I'm so different. But they can resonate with a character uh, like in Rain Rain. They could resonate with Rose Howard, that she's got some great skills. She's got some things that make her really kind of quirky and fun, but she's got perseverance and love in her unique fashion for her uncle um, that... Yeah, you can celebrate being different, and it's cool. Yeah, I love yeah. that about this book, Rain Rain by Ann Martin. Yeah, Rain Rain is one of my all-time favorite books. I just think it's such a gorgeous book. And, and it won the award this past year, Yes, that's it? right. Yeah. So what are some other titles that have won the award that you think mm. you should you want to mention? I, I know narrowing it down is probably I've the biggest so challenge. Many. You know, one that I love, whenever I t- speak to parent groups – um, I read My Brother Sammy. I love the illustrations in this book. Um, and I love the message. It starts out with um, a boy. Let me see, remember his name. Or maybe he's unnamed. But he's got a brother named Sammy. And Sammy goes to school in a special bus. He doesn't get to go on the regular bus like he does. When they go to the park, he flicks his fingers in front of his eyes. He doesn't play with the other kids. When they play in the sandbox, he twirls the sand and watches the sand drip from his fingers. Um, And he finally realizes after his brother knocks down his tower that towers are not just made for building, but they are made for tearing down too. And it's this pivotal point in the book where the brother's perception of his sibling with special needs changes and says, you know what? He does things differently, but that's okay. And he learns to accept him, even though he did not want a, a special brother. It's beautiful. It's it's chiasmic. It's, it's, I, I just love this book. Well, and I love that sense, particularly in that book, too, that it's not always easy, right, with the sibling relationship. They, they don't make it out in that book to be, oh, yes, I've always loved my brother, and he's always fabulous, and I, right. I'm so glad he's special. It's like, uh, this is not always like I need it to be. And it, sometimes it's challenging, but I still love him and accept him in the way. So I, I think that that really brings back home to that point you were making earlier about there's this balance. It's not about all the good. It's not about all the bad. It's about the, the beautiful humanness that this all is. Absolutely. Any other titles you want to mention oh, as goodness. we wind up? You know, one that I liked um, that was a recent award winner was My Brother Charlie by Holly Robinson Pete and her daughter Ryan Elizabeth. Um, What I like about this one, it's the sibling acceptance. But finally, we've got characters who are African-American. So often we have authors who are writing about upper middle class Caucasian families with intact families. We we get that a lot. So this, we've got a multicultural depiction. I would love to see more of this. So children who come from similar backgrounds can resonate with those characters. And I think that that just really underscores this need that we need books about all people in all situations Mm -hmm. because that is just one of the ways we connect with the world. And having these beautiful books are 
are just an important part of that. So where can people find out more information about the Dolly Gray Award? Is there a website or other things they can look at? There is. Um, it's dollygrayaward.com. So it's really easy to find. And we've got a list of all of the award-winning books. And soon we'll have a list of all the books that we've ever considered, our review panel. Um, and then all books are available for checkout through our special collection at the Harold B. Lee Library at Brigham Young University. Yes, that is one of the things we've been honored to do is have have that collection here. And and I also think, particularly if you're not here close, if you see some of these books on your list and you don't have them available in your local library, talk to your librarians, talk to your school librarians or your public librarians, and say, hey, you know, we would really like to have some more of these books in our in our local collections. And and uh, make them aware that these are things, particularly if you have a, a child with disabilities, that you want to see more of those depictions. Speak up and let the librarians know that this is a great way that they can find high-quality depictions of kids with disabilities. So thank you so much for visiting with us today, Tina. We appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Tina Dykes talking about the Dolly Gray Literature Award, which recognizes high-quality children's books that portray characters with developmental disabilities. We finish up the show today with a great way to celebrate Halloween with your family. Margaret Neville, children's book buyer at the King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City, reviews two delightful Halloween picture books, The Halloweener by Dave Pilkey and Frankenstein, A Monstrous Parody by Rick Walton. Halloween books. You know, the nice trend in the last five, ten years has been an uptick in Halloween books. We've always had a great market for Christmas books, holiday books, and they are fun. A lot of good things about Christmas books. But it's been really, it's actually brings a smile to my face to think about Halloween books because we're not bound by um, expectations so much with Halloween. It can just be an entertaining story. And people like funny. Kids like a little bit of scary. And they actually, they really like funny. So a Halloween classic. Pretty much everybody should have this book on their shelf, regardless of the time of year. If you needed to bring a smile to your face, you could take this book out. And when you were finished with it, you would go, oh, that is funny. Dave Pilkey, famous for Captain Underpants, mind you, um, created this masterpiece. It's called The Halloweener. Now, Halloweener is about a dog, and in case you can't tell, he's a wiener dog. There was once a dog named Oscar who was half a dog tall and one and a half dogs long. Because of his unusual shape, all the other dogs made fun of him. Wiener dog, wiener dog. Oscar did not like it one bit. Oscar's mother was no help either. Every morning when the dogs walked off to obedience school, Oscar's mother stood in the front yard waving and calling out, Farewell, my little Vienna sausage. Now, Oscar goes on to do something that might make it up to all the other dogs in obedience school. I'm not going to tell you anymore because you should all get the chance to discover this one on your own. Now, Frankenstein, a monstrous parody. The author's name on the book is Ludwurst Be Monster. Be Monster. Uh, this book actually was written by BYU professor and writing, uh, what would we call Rick? He's a writing force. He's been a tremendous impact in our local writers community. Uh, Rick Walton uh, did this parody of Madeline. The illustrations are so funny. I think they go straight to the Madeline we know and love. 
But Rick takes it and turns it into something that you recognize, but you want to know how, what he's going to do with the story. In a creepy old castle, all covered with spines, live twelve ugly monsters in two crooked lines. In two crooked lines, they bonk their heads, pulled out their teeth, and wet their beds. Now, in Madeline, she ends up going to the hospital. I'm going to do the same thing with Ludwig's The Monsters book. You'll have to read it yourself to find out what a great book is. This is a book with a lot of fun touches, though. Uh, on the cover, there's a medallion. Obviously, not the Newberry or the Caldecott, but a very special award that Rick thought up. Another funny piece, so a book that works for kids and grown-ups alike. Margaret Neville, children's book buyer for the King's English Bookstore in Salt Lake City, reviewing two Halloween picture books. Have a happy Halloween! Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.